our speaker this evening um, is the absolute legend that is Ruth May. Ruth is an ordinand, um, which is a long convoluted word um, for somebody who is training um, to be a vicar, a priest within the Church of England. She's absolutely amazing. She's heavily involved in Leadership College London, which some of you may have heard of. Some of you may have even um, sort of come across um, Ruth and some of her teaching there um, before. She's brilliant. She loves Jesus. She knows loads about the Bible. And so we're super lucky to have her with us this evening. Um, so we're going to hand over right now to Ruth May. That's great. Thank you, Mark and Susie. And it is so great to be here on this final summer night, although I think looking outside in London tonight, the word summer is maybe a tiny bit optimistic, but regardless um, of the blowing gale, we're here and we're gathered together to, to learn more about this glorious God that we love and follow. And tonight we're going to be winding up our series on Joseph. So for those of you who are joining for the first time, or if you maybe a little bit like me are still slightly in holiday mode, um, I'm just gonna begin with a bit of a recap of where we are so far in the story. So we're tracking uh, the story of Joseph, which is found in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And Joseph is a young man with a dream. He literally has a dream in which he sees first his 11 brothers and then his whole family bowing down to him. Joseph is a little spoiled, a little arrogant and very hated by his brothers. So, so hated in fact, that they plot to kill him, eventually deciding to sell him as a slave to some passing merchants. And in that first week, as we looked at that part of the story, Ryan spoke to us of how important it is to make sure that our dreams are God dreams and not just good dreams. And then for us to chase after these dreams with boldness, but also with humility. Joseph um, is sold into slavery, but he turns out to be an excellent worker and he ends up in Potiphar's household where he does so well that he ends up in charge of the whole household and things look to be going pretty well for him. That is until Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, takes a fancy to Joseph and makes a bit of a move. When Joseph resists her, she blames him and wrongly accused, Joseph ends up in prison. And that week, Adiola spoke so beautifully about the development of our character, knowing who we are becoming and how we are going to get there, so that when the moment of crisis comes, we can stand firm in godly character. And so then finally, we got to last week, and Mark, who talked us through the next years of Joseph's life and encouraged us to expect breakthrough. As Joseph is in prison, we see God continue to work on his character until finally there is this major moment of breakthrough in his life. Joseph makes friends in prison. He impresses the guards, interprets a series of dreams. And in fact, he does so well that word gets around. And when Pharaoh has some worryingly complicated dreams that no one else is able to interpret, Joseph is called upon. Again, Joseph excels, impresses Pharaoh, and is promoted, eventually winding up as prime minister over all of Egypt. Joseph is given the responsibility of acting out the warning in the dream, preparing Egypt for seven years of bumper crop, followed by seven years of famine. 
And tonight we're going to pick up the story at this point and see how Joseph's story with all of these twists and turns pans out. We're going to go through several chapters tonight, so I'm not going to read it all in one go, but we will, we will be picking up the story in Genesis 42. So if you want to open your Bibles now, you can go ahead and open them to Genesis 42 as we see how, um, as we will see how Joseph fares as Prime Minister of Egypt. And we get front row seats to an incredible story of reconciliation and redemption. A number of years ago, I was doing a multi-stage cycling event going coast to coast across England. My friend and I were doing um, about 170 miles through very hilly English countryside over three days. And on day two, we faced the hilliest section in the middle of the hardest day. After a mid-morning break, we set off to tackle this tough section and we'd been cycling for about an hour when I got a phone call to tell me that I hadn't got what I thought was going to be my dream job. While I was on the phone, my friend was looking at the map and she realised that for the last hour we had been cycling in entirely the wrong direction. There was nothing for us to do but turn around and do that tough hour again, going in the other direction before we would then hit our major climb. And all that time I was thinking about this job, I had been so sure that this job was gonna be the answer to the dreams that I had. I just finished a, an MA focusing on conflict in Sub-Saharan Africa. This was gonna be my next step. I was sure my dreams were from God. But that following hour after getting the phone call, as I cycled the hardest I've ever cycled in my life, and I powered up through those hills, leaving my friend in my wake, and I felt so full of disappointment, so full of anger and shame, doubting my sense of calling, wondering if my dreams were wrong as tears and sweat mingled together. Fast forward a couple well, a week, having had some time to process and spending some time reconnecting with the dreams that I felt God had given me. And I knew I was right about the dream, but I had been wrong about the process. Literally days after that, I was offered something entirely out of the blue through the craziest of circumstances, which was infinitely better and more suited to me, my skills and my dreams. And that moment on the bike, a literal mess having been going in the wrong direction, both literally and physically and metaphorically in trying to self-engineer my future, I had to stop and give it all back up to God. And remember that if it is a dream from God, he will make a way. Even if we go in the wrong direction over and over again, even if we end up a tear-stained, sweaty mess, if we humbly follow him and trust his ability to direct our steps. And this is one of the most incredible things in this whole narrative arc of the story of Joseph. As we have watched Joseph track through mess after mess and wind up at this point in charge, God is faithful to the dream that he gave. And so just as God had spoken when, G when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, there was indeed a famine in Egypt and it was severe. And it affected not just Egypt, but all the surrounding nations. 
But because Egypt, under Joseph's instructions, had been so well prepared during the bumper harvest, they could they had stocked up all their grain. And so now in this famine, they could open their storehouses and sell grain to the other nations. And we have watched Joseph as he went from this arrogant boy to a slave, disowned and abandoned to a successful assistant, wrongfully accused and imprisoned. And now he is the second most powerful person in the ancient Near East, literally controlling who lives and dies as he hands out grain. And we read in chapter 42 that the famine was so bad in Canaan, which is Joseph's home region, that Jacob, his father, sends his sons to Egypt, to the storehouses of Pharaoh, to beg for grain. And we read in verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When his brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does that maybe sound a little bit familiar? In chapter 37, we had read that Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. I mean, come on, it was even a dream about grain. So the brothers bowed down before Joseph, begging that he would save them. Now, all those years that Jesus, that jo Jesus, Joseph had spent in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Those days immediately after his brothers sold him into slavery. Do you think it was easy for Joseph to hold on to his dream? Because I don't. I can imagine him on the stone floor of the prison cell and I doubt he felt like his dreams were going to come true. And I wonder whether you can empathise with that feeling. That feeling that those things that you long for are just not going to come true. That dream that you've carried for years, maybe you were starting to wonder whether you should just put it down and give up. And I think the encouragement for us tonight is to let God breathe afresh on the dreams he has given us. Maybe as a consequence of years of disappointment, feeling like you're going in the wrong direction, or maybe these last six months of uncertainty, or your own lack of self-belief. Whatever it is that has caused you to doubt, I think that tonight God wants to remind each of us of those dreams that he placed on our hearts all those years ago and breathe on them afresh. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, wrote, In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. And the thing about Joseph's dream, all those years when we watch his character grow and be shaped and formed, able to declare that his skill in dream interpretation comes not from his own ability, but from God, able to resist the temptations of Potiphar's wife, able to stand before Pharaoh and speak the truth of God. What a change from that arrogant, boastful boy who bragged over his future to his brothers. The good work he has begun in you 
the person that he has created you to be, the dreams that he has given you, God is faithful regardless of the mess. So Joseph's dream has come true. He is one of the most powerful people in the world. His own brothers are now bowing down to him. Nations are begging for his favour. What happens? Still in chapter 42, we read in verse 7 that as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but they did not know him. Joseph was speaking through a translator and he would have been dressed up in full Egyptian regalia. There was no way that the brothers could have known it was him. And so over the next three chapters, we have this really long back and forth. Joseph sends the brothers home with full sacks of grain and their silver seed returned to them. But he demands they return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And he keeps one of the other brothers, Simeon, captive in order to ensure that they will come back. Jacob refuses to allow the brothers to come back with Benjamin, fearing for the life of his now favourite child. And so they leave Simeon in prison in Egypt, not particularly nice for Simeon, until they once again run out of food. Necessity wins and the brothers, this time with Benjamin, go back to Joseph. A clever sleight of hand later and Benjamin is accused of stealing a precious silver cup from Joseph and he is arrested. So we hit chapter 45 and the moment of the big reveal. Joseph had already eavesdropped on the brothers' ongoing guilt about what they had done to him and now he is moved by their evident love of both Benjamin and their father, not wanting to return home without Benjamin. They beg for his life and Joseph dramatically reveals himself to the brothers. It's all very Hollywood and you can totally see why there's a musical of this story. So we read in chapter 45, starting at verse one. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for sending me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I mean, this is the epitome of a dysfunctional family. They sold one brother as a slave. They leave another to rot in prison. There's favoritism, hatred, and all these years later, still such guilt. And yet what we see here in chapter 45 and again later in chapter 47 when their father Jacob joins the brothers is an incredible moment of reconciliation. A reconciliation which humanly should not be possible. A few years ago I was living and working in Uganda with a Christian organisation that took young people from across the country from different tribes and brought them together for vocational training and biblical development. 
these young people would come from regions and tribes that had historically experienced lots of conflict between each other. There was a lot of prejudice and envy, uh, judgment, mistrust. And in the first few days as part of the settling in process, there was this big welcome ceremony. And in this ceremony, every tribe would perform their own traditional dances in their own traditional costumes and in their own native tongue. And over the coming months, these young people would live together, they would work together, they'd train together. And at times it was really dicey. Tensions would rise, conflicts would emerge. And I remember my first year um, living there, being in a particularly tense season when it felt like there was just conflict after conflict, um, clashes after clashes. And I was thinking, how are we ever gonna bridge this gap? But part of the vision of the organization was to work to heal racial tension and to bridge the gap between tribes, teaching, restorative justice, lots of scripture. And then I remember at the end of my first year in the final ceremony after these young people had lived together for a year and we had a big dance party. And this time everybody was doing each other's tribal dances and they had collectively created a new dance named for the farm they lived on that blended together different elements from each tribe. And it was the most beautiful thing that felt like a glimpse of heaven for me. A reconciliation that shouldn't be possible, that in human terms looked crazy. <clears throat> These brothers had sold, had sold Joseph into slavery. Excuse me. Back. They had, these brothers had sold, had sold Joseph into slavery. They had left him for dead because they were jealous that their dad loved him more. And yet here, through the grace and mercy of God, they are reunited, they are reconciled together. And I think there is a real challenge for us here, a challenge to be people of reconciliation no matter how messy the circumstances. Not many of us will have faced being sold into slavery by our 11 brothers, but most of us have been hurt by friends or family. We have carried pain. We have known betrayal and abandonment. And most of us probably have some relationships right now in our life in which we know we are not really reconciled. We're not living in a right relationship. And it isn't always possible or appropriate to confront that person, to have the kind of restoration that Joseph has, but it is always possible to forgive and release, to allow God through the power of his Holy Spirit to bring healing and comfort, to forgive us where we have been instigators of broken relationships and to help us forgive those who have hurt us. And it is the most beautiful story, this tale of reconciliation. And it is a story that we are all woven into. And if this has spoken to you, if this has maybe provoked something in you that's come to mind, challenged you in some kind of way, I want to encourage you to read this story again, to really spend some time in these chapters and see how God might be leading you into a place of greater reconciliation. 
So this reconciliation happens and the brothers, their father, Jacob, and the whole wider family settle in Egypt. We read that they are given land by Pharaoh, that some of the brothers are given good jobs in Pharaoh's household. They are taken care of and they prosper as a wider family. They marry, they have children, they establish themselves. And then at the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies. And when Jacob dies, the same old guilt and fear rises up again in the brothers and they start saying, what if Joseph was only nice to us for the sake of our father? And what if now he is dead, Joseph's gonna come and get us? And so in chapter 50, um, in verse 15, we read, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? You see, the brothers did not trust in the forgiveness they had experienced. They didn't believe that Joseph had really forgiven them, that they were truly reconciled. Despite all the tears shed, all the words spoken, despite the years of peace and prosperity, the brothers were still waiting for Joseph to get his revenge. The brothers were still living in the shame and guilt of what they had done. All these years later, they still lived in shame. I saw this stat yesterday that stress among teenagers has significantly decreased since lockdown began. Now, I don't know why exactly, but I can hazard a guess. The anxiety and pressure of their life, of going to school, of facing bullies of homework, exams, questions about what to do with life, fear, insecurities, and perhaps most pervasively the shame that every day tells us we are not good enough and nothing we will do will ever make us good enough. You see, guilt, when we've, when we've done wrong and we need to make amends, guilt is a godly emotion. But guilt and shame that hold us captive, that dictate our lives, that keep us in bondage is not godly and it is pervasive in our society. I don't know about you, but I know that feeling, the guilt that means that even though I've repented from sins from the past, they hang over my head. The shame that says that things I've done, things I haven't done, exclude me from love, exclude me from God, exclude me from forgiveness. The shame that holds us captive, that means that we are constantly just waiting to be found out. And that, like the brothers, might try to manipulate our way into freedom. The brothers fake a message to Joseph. So when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And so we come to one of the high points in the whole story of Joseph. The um, passage goes on. 
When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And I want to come to land by looking at this final interaction between Joseph and his brothers. You see, the brothers held captive by shame and guilt offer themselves as slaves as if they, they literally put themselves into further bondage. And what does Joseph do? He weeps. He weeps over their shame and guilt. He weeps over their pain. He weeps over the bondage that they still live in, even though they are free. Because Joseph is free. He has let go of his shame. He has let go of his anger and the desire for revenge. He has forgiven his brothers. He is free. And so Joseph can say this beautiful sentence. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. God, the great redeemer, able to bring beauty out of the worst of messes, able to bring good out of the greatest of pains. And an important thing to note here is that this doesn't mean that God planned it. God didn't set out for Joseph to suffer such pain, but the harm caused to him was redeemed. It was turned into something beautiful as it was used to save not just Egypt, but God's chosen people. What a moment of redemption, abandonment, rejection, betrayal, pain, turned into freedom, forgiveness, and the salvation of nations. And I want you to hear this tonight as well. If you only take one thing away, I want it to be this one. The thing that is hanging over your head, that guilt that weighs you down, that the shame that you live in, the voice that says you are no good and you will never be any good. God wants to transform it. God can forgive and not just forgive, but redeem it into something beautiful. God's desire is to set you free from the bondage and captivity you live in, to set you free as a saved, forgiven, chosen child. Don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. So know that the dream that God has put on your heart, those things that he has called you to, he will be faithful, regardless of the tear-stained, sweaty messes we end up in. He is faithful and we can trust in him. And perhaps most importantly, he has called us to freedom from shame and guilt, a freedom to be reconciled with him and with those around us. A calling that says that those darkest parts of our lives can have the light of Christ shone on them and be redeemed and used for good. Those things intended to harm can become beautiful in the light of his glory. Amen.